These are the last days for the Church Without Wall sermon series. And some of you are shaking your heads, you doubt it, you don't believe it. Uh, I wouldn't mislead you. We have six more weeks, including today, of this sermon series. We have the sermon schedule already mapped out. It's, it's in red and black on the document that Pastor Peter sent to me. Um, and so we have six more weeks uh, to finish the book of Acts, and then we'll be done. So uh, that, is, that is good news. Some of you came to our church, and we started this sermon series when you were here, and we're still here, and you're wondering whether they preach anything else. Um, um, but uh, periodically, we've taken some breaks, and we're going over the, last, over the next six Sundays through the last good bit of uh, the book of Acts. Before I get into the message this morning. I want to I say something that is, is in this particular chapter, but not really. I want to make an observation um, for some of you uh, who, who will connect, but not necessarily with... Hey, it's fan. Oh, it's not me. It's the fan. Okay. Well, it's good to see you anyway. Thank you. Um, I want to I I make a statement um, that, that is pulled from another verse of Scripture, two verses of Scripture in 1 Peter. Because when we come to Acts 22 and 23, we're, we're coming to, to an, a, a Paul's situation. And, and, and some of you have seen this movement. He's one after another going up and down, in and out of times of ministry and times of persecution, times of suffering, uh, times of great uh, celebration, times of pain. And, um, and, and the text that we will look at today is another example of that. And as we come to Acts 22, the last part of 22, the first part of 23, I, I want to say something that's out of First Peter chapter 2. Um, and, and this is for those of you who are experiencing maybe something like Paul, where you're in and out of experiences of, of joy on the one hand and suffering and challenge on the other. Maybe persecution in your life on one hand and you step back, you get a break from it. And then all of a sudden you're back into a scenario where you're wondering where God is and what the point of all of this suffering is. And I want to read this verse of these two verses, first Peter two, 19 and 20. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Some of you this morning are going to hear this passage of scripture in Acts and you're going to see this. Oh, here we go again. This is another example of a person who is faithful, a person who is following Jesus, getting hit again, attacked again, suffering again, persecuted again. And that looks like my life. And sometimes that can be completely debilitating, completely dazing. Maybe you're dizzy in your own life, wondering when what you're going through or someone that you know is experiencing when that will let up. And I want you to hear First Peter this morning saying that when you suffer, when you endure persecution, when you are enduring calamity and change and transition and hardship in your life, when it's unjust, that what you're going through is, is something that God calls not just gracious, but good. 
that there is something good and, and it is not so much that, go, that suffering is good or that persecution is good or that what, hard, what we experience as hardship is good. The, 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 the reason is not necessarily good. The, we're going through something and, and God is looking at that, that challenge in that situation and he's calling that good. Suffering is good. It's not that. It's that the result and what God is doing in you and what God is producing in you and the fruit that comes from this experience of change and hardship. That is what is gracious. That is what is good. And, and I want you to hear that, that experiencing onslaughts time after time again of persecution and change and disruption and interruption that God looks at you who are following after Jesus and following hard and saying that that is good. Will you be encouraged this morning as you listen to Luke's account of Paul, Paul going through another ordeal, another uh, trial, another period of persecution? Will you remember, because it, it, it only leaks through this passage, will you remember that when this happens to the people of God, that this is good? That God is pulling something, producing something, crafting and shaping something that is good in scripture, in your life, and in my life. We're in Acts chapter 22 this morning. And uh, ending 22 and going into chapter 23 verses 1 through 11. And so I want you uh, to, if, if you can and will, to read this with me, uh, for us to read scripture together. Uh, when we do this, there are fast readers and slow readers. Uh, if you read slow, you speed up. And if you read fast, you slow down. And let's read uh, these several verses together. Come on, read this. Read this aloud. The next day, the commander ordered the leading priests into session with the Jewish high council. Keep reading. So there was a great uproar. Some of the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, jumped up and began to argue forcefully. We see nothing wrong with him, they shouted. Perhaps a spirit or an angel. As the conflict grew more violent, 
The commander was afraid they would tear Paul apart. So he ordered his soldiers to go and rescue him by force and take him back to the fortress. That night, the Lord appeared to Paul and said, Be encouraged, Paul, just as you have been witnessed me here in Jerusalem. You must preach the good news in Rome as well. This is the word of the Lord for us. Thanks be to God. Some of you will remember in Acts 22 that Paul is, uh, that, that Luke rather closes the chapter with a mob scene. Um, and, and Paul is moved from one mob scene to another mob-like uh, scene. He is released to stand before the high council by a Roman commander who is responsible for him. Now, in rabbinic literature, the high council, this is the Sanhedrin. This is the body of um, Jewish leaders, religious leaders, political leaders, that is called together as a court to decide major cases and to make decisions when disagreements uh, about points of law come up. And so the Sanhedrin is a, is a body or a council uh, that is very well known in Paul's time. And this is actually the same Sanhedrin that Paul got permission to or permission from in order to persecute Christians. This, this is the same body that in the book of Acts uh, tries uh, Stephen, if you remember way back when uh, we were in the early part of the book, this is the same group that tries Peter, the other 12 apostles, and the Sanhedrin actually also tries Jesus. In fact, the same high priest who, uh, brought, who, was, who, was, who was instrumental in presiding over Jesus' so-called trial is standing before Paul here in Acts 23. In Jewish tradition, the high priest was the person who was to excel. The high priest was supposed to be superior to all other priests. And and, and the high priest was picked out uh, because of his moral rectitude and excellence and and superiority, as it were. And he was to excel in every way, was supposed to be superior in every way. If the high priest were poor, the other priests were supposed to contribute to his coffers and to his pockets book so that the high priest wouldn't be poor. The high priest couldn't even have, the high priest rather could have his own house in Jerusalem. And so when he was done working for the day, he would retire to this house and live. And the high priest was given respect so much so that when he came into the room, he was escorted by three people, one person to his right, one to his left, and one behind him. The high priest was treated with deference and respect and reverence because he was a high priest. He was righteous, was um, unblameable, was exceptional in his spiritual life. And so when Paul comes to this Sanhedrin council in Acts 23, he's coming to a council that is revered and respected and that has a high priest who is revered and respected. 
There is some dispute whether Paul recognized the high priest in chapter 23. He may not have recognized the high priest. This was not a meeting that the high priest had put on their calendar. You remember from what we read, the Roman commander calls the Sanhedrin council together. So it's an impromptu meeting. So maybe the high priest is not dressed in his traditional uniform. So maybe he's not recognizable. Paul says he doesn't know who the high priest is. So maybe he doesn't because he lets out this comment that is offensive. The Roman commander calls this together. Paul maybe didn't recognize the high priest. And so he says to Ananias this, uh, this offensive thing. Ananias is, is, again, this high priest, and he is the same person who sent Jesus to Roman authorities. History tells us that this particular high priest was one of the worst high priests the nation had. Now, you've got on the one hand this expectation for the high priest to be superior in spirituality, for the high priest to be a guardian of morality. The high priest is supposed to be exemplary, and then there is Ananias. Ananias is a cheat. He steals from the other priests. He actually takes land. He takes money. He is so bad that he's eventually assassinated. Now, get this. He's a priest and he's assassinated. The high priest and he's killed. The language that Paul uses when he, when he calls this high priest a corrupt hypocrite in some translations is that he is a, a whitewashed wall that's coming out of Ezekiel 13. And, 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 and that has to do with um, priests being painted to look a certain way, but nothing, but nothing going deeper than the paint. So get in your mind a wall, get in your mind drywall that has perhaps been eaten through uh, or dampened so much by mold that when you press something, put your hand on it, it just goes right through the wall. There's nothing to the wall itself. There's nothing holding up the wall. There's just something that you see. There's just appearance. And Paul calls the high priest a whitewashed wall. He is a corrupt hypocrite. He looks the part but he has nothing inside him. And so Paul is looking at this man who is leading this council session. It is a trumped up and corrupt council session led by a high priest who is a hypocrite. We don't get to see witnesses. We don't get to hear in this um, impromptu trial other points of view. So in some ways it's a trial. In other ways it's not quite a trial. It's kind of like the, the Sanhedrin is called together uh, for a meeting and they don't know what the meeting is about. They're responding to this commander. They're coming and they're seeing Paul there. And Paul opens and he says to them that God, he has lived before God with a clear conscience. Paul's conscience is clear. And when he says that his conscience is clear, he gets slapped. Now, before I go to talk about him getting slapped, I want to talk a little bit about his conscience. Say the word conscience, everybody. Say it again. Say conscience. Conscience is 
is knowledge. It is knowledge that comes from reflection. So it is, it is something that you know about you reflecting on you. It is what you know about you after reflecting on you. And Paul is claiming that what he knows about himself after thinking and considering his life, his conscience is clear. He is appraising himself, examining himself, and what he comes up with is a clear conscience. One translation says that Paul has lived his life without guilty feelings before God up to this day. Paul has lived his life without guilt feelings before God to this day. Now, if, you, if you've read any part of Acts, you've probably dropped on Paul's conversion story. You've probably heard something about his past, about his history with the church. He is before the council that has authorized him years before to persecute Christians. And he has administrated the persecution and the suffering of Christians for years and years. And now he stands before this Sanhedrin council and says that his conscience is clear. If there is a person who should say that his conscience is not clear, it is a person like Paul. How is he able to declare that his conscience is clear? Is he especially holy? Is he especially sanctimonious? No, he's not. Paul is taking refuge in his mind and in his heart, in his self-appraisal, because of the good news of Jesus Christ. Because he has been um, confronted with and he has embraced Jesus This is a man who has a history of persecuting Christians. He is a man whose past comes back to him over and over again. He preaches to Christians and every time he preaches, he is presented with his history. Every time he tells someone about the greatness of sin and the greatness of God's grace, he is revisiting his his past and he is able to say that when he thinks, when he reflects, when he appraises himself, his own life, that his conscience is clear. He could be guilty. He could have guilt feelings, but there is a message that he hears that is more convincing than the one that comes from his past. He is qualified for guilt feelings because of what he has done, and yet in Acts, before the the, the religious leadership, the political leadership, he recounts his past And rather than inspiring remorse, it inspires thanksgiving. Can I ask you, church, to think about your own life? Maybe you don't have a past of persecuting Christians. But, but we all have background, we all have backstory, we all have things before today. We have histories up until this moment right now. And, and I want to ask you, can you stretch your life to say what Paul says by God's grace to say, because not of my own morality, not because of my own discipline, not because of my own efforts, but because of the greatness of the gospel that my conscience, my 
my appraisal, my self-evaluation is clear. How I think about what I've done has been so redeemed by God that I can stand before you and say that my conscience is clear. Paul sees his past, he sees his behavior, and at the same time, he sees the past and the behavior and the sacrifice of Jesus. And rather than being guilty, Scripture says that his self-understanding is clear, that his conscience is clear. In this scripture, Paul is he's, he's implicitly comparing his own past with what he sees before him. Think about this council with Ananias, this corrupt, sort of hypocritical, um, lying, thieving, conniving high priest who has a past that is supposed to be law-abiding. And Paul is looking at him and saying, you have a past that is not so law-abiding. He's looking at himself and he's saying, I have a past that is not so law-abiding if there is reason for me to be guilty. I have it, you have it, but the difference between Ananias and Paul is a thing called grace. And grace is calling and enabling Paul to claim that his mind and his spirit, his motives, his conscience is clear. Paul doesn't boast in his past. And if he does boast in his past, he's boasting in the transforming power of God's work in his life. Can you you see yourself doing this? Can you hear yourself? Can you hear words coming out of your mouth? I'm looking at my life. I'm looking at my decisions. I'm looking at my choices. I'm looking at my behaviors. I'm looking at my thoughts. And I'm saying, apart from the gospel, I would have a guilty conscience. But because of what Jesus has done, his sacrifice for my thoughts, my behaviors, my past, my sin, my conscience is clear. Paul has a clear sense of himself, not because he's perfect. He is imperfect, but because Jesus, his Savior, is perfect. Verse verse 6 says that Paul realized that some members of the high council were Sadducees and some were Pharisees. So he shouted, brothers, I am a Pharisee, as were my ancestors, and I am on trial because my hope is in the resurrection of the dead. I want you to appreciate what Paul is doing in this text. He realizes that there is a split between the men and the men on the, on the council, and he exploits this split. So he, he makes a claim that is true for him, but the, the, but the result of this claim is chaos. This, scripture says, divided the council, the Pharisees against the Sadducees. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection or angels or spirits, but the Pharisees believe in all of these. So there was a great Uproar. Some of the teachers of religious law who were Pharisees jumped up and began to argue forcefully. We see nothing wrong with him, they say. Perhaps a spirit or an angel spoke to him. As the conflict grew more violent, the commander was afraid that they would tear Paul apart. 
I want to talk this morning about conflict. And, and uh, this conflict that is brewing starts when the high priest, Ananias, orders Paul to be struck. He tells somebody to slap Paul. Now, Paul hasn't committed a civil or a legal offense. His, his offense is a spiritual one. He's looking at this corrupt high priest. He's claiming to have a clear conscience. He's declared something in doing that that is offensive to the interpretations of the high priest. So Paul gets struck. Paul gets slapped. Um, And Paul must be chained or he must not be from my neighborhood because when he's slapped, you know, he... Luke, well, at least Luke doesn't say he slaps anybody back, but, but Paul is struck and, uh, and he, he gets hit. And this is contradictory to the Mosaic law, which Paul, uh, actually says, he says, how do you have me struck? And when the priest orders it, the priest chooses to go down or to stay down a path of disobedience to the law. And, and I don't want to, I don't want to present this artificial split between, uh, Ananias and Paul and tell you to pick one, tell you to pick Paul because Paul lets you slap him and he doesn't hit you back. But Ananias is corrupt and he tells somebody, I don't want you to do that because I think if we're honest, we dance between Ananias and Paul every day. And Ananias is a tutor. He is a teacher because he is somebody quite like me most days and quite like you most days who makes a choice that is different from what he knows he should do in his heart. And I don't want you to get caught up in in sort of the religious weeds, but I want you to hear that Ananias is a person who knows what truth is. He is He is superior in some ways, partly because he has a knowledge of what truth is. He is a religious leader. He is a leader in his own right. And yet he chooses to do what is against what he knows he should do. And when he orders Paul to be struck, he is staying down a path of disobedience to the law that he's supposed to exalt. We are all like this priest. I started to say we can all be like this priest. But we are all like this priest. Some days we're like, Paul, you slap me, and I'll tell you that that was against the law. Some days we're like Ananias, and we're the person striking people for no reason or because they say something that we don't agree with. And part of growth in your life, part of growth in my life is when we're more like Ananias and we are corrupt and we are two-faced and we do deceive and we steal and we hit people for no reason. Part of growth is you hitting people less than you would. Part of growth is you lying and conniving less than you would. Part of spiritual growth for some of you this morning is not so much that your life turns around in 180 degrees. Part of your growth may just be turning a bit. Part of your growth may be, I would have hit you if you said that to me two days ago. But today, you get a pass. That, for some of us, is growth. And we don't acknowledge it. We have this idea and this image that growth is, if I have to pick between Ananias and Paul, let's go with Paul. Because Paul is humbly taking the hit on the cheek. Paul is taking the lick. And he seems to be pleasing God in that. But we don't look at Ananias and say, but my life is like him. And how... Can I grow? How can I grow closer 
to God. And in Luke's writing, Ananias is this, this exemplar of the law who doesn't live up to the law. In some ways, this, this is ironic, this text. And, and it's funny. And um, Will Willimon, a preacher um, in the United Methodist Church who comments, who has a commentary on the book of Acts, says that this passage is funny. He says that laughter occurs when we go through, listen at this and think about Paul. Laughter occurs when we go on the offensive against despair. When we take the initiative against tragedy. Determined not to relinquish tomorrow to the powers of evil and death. How funny it is when we go through tragedy and and times of persecution and suffering and still hold on to purpose and to reason for being and stay with life as opposed to giving life up in the face of evil and death. There is no better restatement of the good news. Here, the high priest overseeing the whole show is himself corrupt and he's leading others in breaking the Mosaic law. And, and here are the people who, who are supposed to decide Paul's fate. This is the Sanhedrin council who's supposed to make a decision based upon what the Roman commander has asked them to do about Paul's future. And they can't get themselves together. This is the body who's supposed to be able to make the decision and they are split. They are fighting. This is pretty funny. Here is Paul in chains and controlling the entire scenario. Here is Paul bound in the face of the more powerful others who are supposed to tell him what his future is. And he is exhibiting awesome self-control. Paul finds an end. And he gets out. He's in control of this situation. He sees what's happening and he declares his opinion about why these things are happening. He doesn't control his circumstances. He doesn't control his situation, but he controls his attitude. He controls his mind. He controls his wit and he uses his wit. He uses his mind and his attitude to start a fight. Say the word conflict. Say it again. Say conflict. There there are some conflicts that you have, that I have, that we can do nothing about. And uh, this is what we see in this text. Paul, well, actually he knew what he was doing. um, but, But the high priest has an opinion that's different from Paul. The Sadducees have an opinion that's different from the Pharisees. And so Paul is in the middle of this conflict and, um, and he starts it, but he can do nothing about it because he doesn't rule the council. And there are some disagreements and some, some fights and some conflicts, and I'll use those somewhat interchangeably over the next few moments, that you don't start. There's some that you do little to instigate them, and yet you get hit or you get struck. Sometimes other people extend expectations of you. They tell you about them. Sometimes they don't. And they hold you to their expectations. And when you don't meet their expectations, conflict starts. And what I want to do is talk um, very briefly about three ways of dealing with conflict. And I'm I'm drawing from 
uh, two people who I respect uh, who do a lot of work with, with married couples, actually. They do work in marital therapy, uh, John and Julie Gottman. And uh, they, they talk about conflict in one of their books, and it's not just about married couples, this particular one. So I want to I offer you three ways and a fourth way to look at conflict, the three of them coming out of their work and adding on uh, to a fourth one. And when I think about conflict, I think about three or four types of people. Uh, this doesn't come from them, but three or four types of people. The first person I think about, and uh, you probably think about this person too, is a conflict avoider. Uh, And this is the person who doesn't get into conflict. They try to stay away from conflict. They get away from the disagreement or the fight. They ignore it. These are the conflict avoiders. I think about conflict engagers. Some of you like conflict. And you you look at it and you say, there's so much productivity here. There's so much good. There's room for growth. These are folks who like conflict, get in the middle of it, uh, and just thrive because you engage in disagreement and in the process of disagreeing. Those are conflict engagers. And these these are my... Words. It might be better words. The third type of person I think of is the conflict starter. Now, this is me on a bad day. I'm the conflict starter. I'm the person who starts fights and walks away. So I say things, I say things that um, spark in other people uh, something, and then I sort of move away. And, uh, and this is me, again, this is me redeemed because, you know, pastors have to be able to say things that sort of get you to think and get you to, oh, maybe there's something to pay attention here. So that, that's good. There's a gift there, but I don't use it usually then. I, I like to use this uh, to start fights and to make people mad and then just kind of laugh. So pray for me because, pray for me. Pray for, it's pretty good. No, no, no. You're the same way. Okay. Okay. It's me, me and Sven are conflict starters, right? So the fourth one would be the conflict solvers. And these are the folks, um, these are the folks who might not be good at the process, but they're good at looking at what's there and finding solutions, finding reasons and ways to end disagreement. And so maybe you find yourself in one or two of those labels. Maybe you are both a conflict solver um, and a conflict starter. Maybe you start them, walk away, and you come back and you say, okay, this is how I started, this is how I ended. Um, Maybe you're a conflict engager. Maybe you're an avoider. Maybe you're someone who is charged with the task in your family of keeping the peace. And so when there's a conflict, uh, they go get you to solve it, to resolve it. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you're in all of them in some kind of strange schizophrenic way. But, but, but here, here are three or four ways of dealing with conflicts coming out of Gottman, uh, their work. The first, the first thing, and this is obviously not in Acts, um, but I want you to think about this in relationship to the gospel. Think about conflict in relation to the gospel. The, the, the first way of dealing with disagreement, conflict that I'll lift up is to establish a dialogue about conflict, to, to talk about conflict. And this is most difficult for the avoiders in the group uh, because this is not something that you look to do or want to do. Uh, but talking about where disagreement is. Uh, all of us have relationships with people. Uh, some of you are married. Some of you have children. Some of you have friends. Uh, hopefully all of y'all have friends. But, but um, Um, All of us have some kind of relationships and the potential for us to be in conflict is is daily. Right. And and one of the ways to deal with it is to avoid it 
if you just want to be that way, but you can address it. And when you have to address it, when the conflict or the person you're in conflict with comes back again and again, or the issue comes back again and again, you will kill yourself if you don't address it. So establishing a dialogue, talking with this person about what's at issue. Now in Acts, there is, there is a dialogue that's established. It's an argument. The Pharisees and the Sadducees have a difference of opinion and they start arguing about it. And this, this sometimes is holy and productive work arguing, right? Uh, some people call arguing an expression of intimacy. It is, it is you're, you're invested, you're passionate, and you're talking out of your passion and your uh, investment. One of my friends calls arguments uh, heated discussions. Um, and, 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 and that's one way of establishing a dialogue. It pushes you to stop avoiding conflict. The second, the second way of dealing with conflict is to accept um, your differences, to accept what is different about you and the people or the person you're in conflict with. This, if there's a second piece to accepting difference, and again, I want you to be thinking about this in response to the good news of Jesus Christ. So, so this is not just some kind of mini workshop on conflict or, or conflict uh, resolution as much as what we can understand through the lens of Scripture, and we'll get there in a moment. But, but think about accepting the differences of a person. And secondarily, uh, not labeling the differences that you have with the person as the reason for your conflict. The Gottmans call this uh, perpetual conflicts. There are perpetual conflicts that we get into. Uh, I have, I, I'm married. My wife and I have perpetual conflicts. They're conflicts that just don't go away. They're conflicts because I'm the person I am and she's the person she is and I haven't found a way to change her yet. It's, it's just perpetual. So uh, the, the Gottmans talk about this as conflicts that come from your character or from your personality or from your preferences. So you like the color red, I like the color blue, and we get into arguments because we prefer a different color. And those are differences that will never lead to conflict resolution unless you get converted to my opinion, right? That won't happen. So we have to embrace those differences, accept those differences, and that's the second way that we deal with conflict. And the third way is rebuilding or repairing um, what can be during and after conflicts, repairing or rebuilding what you can. Uh, now, now for, for people who fight a lot um, or for people who like to fight, repairing and rebuilding takes a whole different set of skill. It takes patience. It takes humility. It takes a kind of a purposefulness to do this. And I want you to think about rebuilding and repairing because of connection, because of intimacy, because of communion. Now, those, are, those can become very Christian words and Christian ideas, and I want to bridge this idea of repairing in a conflict to, to what Scripture says and to what the gospel says. Because when you think about talking about what you disagree with uh, or your disagreements, or when you think about accepting someone else who is different from you or acknowledging that there are preferences or dispositions or characteristics that you share that somebody else doesn't, it takes Jesus Christ and the gospel to have dialogue, to accept, and to rebuild. It takes a kind of conversion of your soul and a humility that comes with, with receiving grace uh, to listen to somebody 
who you disagree with. It takes humility and grace to walk away from an opinion or a preference of yours in order for somebody else or for peace to develop in a relationship between you and somebody else. And when you pull these kind of three pieces under the gospel, uh, you become a person who listens, a person who is gracious, a person who is constructive. And, and I don't think we see this necessarily in Luke's account because Luke doesn't give us enough material to see how this, how this argument shakes out. But I want you to come to a couple of other passages of scripture, three or four of them, and to think about the conflict that we see in Acts, the conflicts and the disagreements that you see in your own life. Now, in Scripture, the word conflict and disagreement isn't used. You don't see um, those, that kind of language in Scripture. What you see is language about sin, offense, and uh, correspondingly grace and reconciliation um, or communion or unity. So be aware of that. So Matthew six, fourteen and 15. Uh, Scripture says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your father will not forgive you. Now, again, there's no conflict here, but the language of sin, the language of uh, this break in relationship is there, the language of sin. So think about this conflict or disagreement or sin and what it takes to get past it in Matthew 6 being forgiveness. And the language of the text says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your, fa- your heavenly father will forgive you. Mark 11 and 24, similar passage of scripture says, I tell you, you can pray for anything. And if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your father in heaven will forgive your sins too. The next passage comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. This is a a chapter that has to do with unity, has to do with Paul addressing division in the body of Christ. The the language of baptism is in the early part of this chapter. And so as he closes this chapter, he says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. These are great words to live up to. The last, the last verse comes from First Peter chapter three, uh, verses eight and nine. Finally, all of you should be of one mind sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters. The same language that Paul uses, be tender-hearted and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do and he will bless you for it. Scripture doesn't, doesn't straddle a fence here. The scriptures are clear that when, when, when we are seeking God's heart around fights, arguments, 
um, conflicts, disagreements, um, that, that, that reconciliation, that unity is the objective and the goal and the way to get it is through the work of living and being tenderhearted, being humble, praying, forgiving, getting rid of bitterness, rage, harsh words. Consider your conscience this morning. Consider what you think about and think of as you hear the language of conflicts, as you hear me talking about disagreements, where your mind and your heart goes, the last conflicts that you were in. Consider your conscience this morning. Think about if you were struck or frankly, the last time you were struck and how close you were to being tender hearted, to being humble, to being forgiving. Because if scripture is true, it is not just calling us to something. It is not just calling us to be tenderhearted and humble and prayerful and forgiving. It is stating a reality that is inside the person whose heart has been changed by Jesus. Whose mind has been transformed by the spirit of God. When your heart and your life has been changed by God, these characteristics These characteristics grow in you. And they come out when we have conflicts with other people. Now, there's another kind of conflict. I'm not going to talk about internal conflicts, but as I round this message out, I want to talk a little bit about conflicts with God and how uh, the gospel is an answer to our conflicts with God. Because we can disagree with God. We can fight with God. we We can argue with God. And I like to remind myself and other people from time to time that fighting with God is very exhausting and it always ends up in us losing. And some of you are here this morning, and when you think about conflict, you're okay with conflict with other people. You're pretty good at establishing a dialogue. You're, you're old enough, mature enough, wise enough to notice that there are differences between you and another person. Your issue is not necessarily with conflicts with your friends or people you're in relationship with. Your issue is conflicts with God. And, and this, this sustained disagreement of what you want and what God expects. Scripture tells us that Paul is going somewhere. He's going to Rome. And and it's the last part of this passage in verse 11. And if we aren't careful, we can walk away from this message because, you know, 10 out of 11 verses or 10 out of 12 verses have nothing to say about God. There's something about conscience. And then at the end, God says something to Paul. But overwhelmingly, if we're responding to what's in the scripture, what's in the scripture is argumentative, is debate, is disagreement, is fighting and conflict. But but that's not all in this text and we can't walk away from this text without listening to what Luke says at the end of these verses when he gets to God because the truth is this this passage is about Paul but it's not about Paul it's about conflict and argument and difference of opinion but it's not about difference of opinion this text is about God this text as well as the book of Acts the narratives that we've seen are about God. And if I don't say this clearly uh, as I continue to trail on, 
let me say that the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is God's answer to your conflict with him. God's answer to your soul's argument, your life's disagreement with a God who, who, who expects things from you, things that you can't live, are answered by Jesus Christ. The Bible talks about the fact that we are enemies of God, that we, without embracing the powerful work of Jesus Christ, are in eternal conflict with God. We are God's enemies. We are opposers of God. We are living in opposition with God. But the message of Jesus Christ, the message in Scripture, is that God gives free grace to us, that God forgives us who are his enemies, that the God we, by nature, oppose, extends to us an opportunity for reconciliation and grace. This means for your relationship with God that wherever you think you are in connection to God, however far you think you are from God, is not because of something God has put between you and God. God puts nothing between you and him. There is nothing but grace between you and God. And the point of grace is to bring you closer to God, not to take you farther from God. Romans says that nothing separates us from the love of God, not height, depth, not tribulation, not anything we experience. And if you are fighting with God this morning, if you are uh, waiting for God uh, or the next round of opinions and arguments between you and God, can you hear me tell you that the only thing that you need to hear about God in relation to your disagreement is that God is looking for a way to bring you closer, to draw you nearer, to make you reconcile. That means there's nothing you did, there's nothing you can do to push you farther and farther from God. And if it is, it's in your mind because all God is doing is coming closer and closer. And you feel farther and farther because you're moving back. And God is moving each time you do to come closer and closer. And that, my friends, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That everything you need to come closer to God, God has provided between you and him. The second thing this means is that in your relationships, if you are a follower of Jesus, following Jesus means that you pursue people, that you pursue peace, that you pursue reconciliation, communion, community between people, unity between the person who opposes you, that you seek it because you're following Jesus who seeks it. So if Jesus is pursuing you and if you follow him, then you pursue the person who you're opposing. At the end of this passage, God comes to Paul and he says something to Paul that, um, that is, uh, is powerful and even still brief. God says to Paul in verse 11, the night he appears to Paul, 
Be encouraged, Paul. Just as you have been a witness to me in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. And I'm, I'm finished with my message this morning. I'm, I'm going to say this, actually, and I'm finished. Um, Paul is ending his time in Jerusalem. And he is, he is, he is ending his time He is hearing God talk about the next place where he's going. So Paul knows that his life is not over. He knows that he has somewhere else to go, which is good. Paul knows he's not going to get killed when this mob ensues. He's going to Rome, but but God tells him something that I want you to hear, um, and that is to be encouraged. Paul is closing another episode of ministry. And can you imagine, and, and, and I, think, I think the way to imagine this is to think about the projects in your life, the work in your life, the things that you have started, and all of the hopes and the, and the dreams and the objectives that you've had when you've started something. So consider that. Well, reading through some of your prayer requests, there are folks in our church who are taking on leadership positions in their campus fellowships, for example, and uh, taking, taking leadership positions there, and needing prayer for God to send to give them wisdom and, and for God to direct them and to guide them. And, and I tell you, that person who is taking leadership at their campus is taking that leadership position and they're thinking about all of the ideas and the possibility and the potential that God could use them to bring on their campus. And Paul, in some ways, starts ministry in the same way. He goes to Rome. He goes to Jerusalem. He goes to Ephesus. And he has in his heart all of these things that God just might do there. And I imagine Paul, when he sees another fight happening, another conflict happening, another misunderstanding happening, that him, that him buckling down to this core of God, is this what you had in mind when you sent me here? And, and, and we can't get into his psyche, but, but I want you to try to reach Paul on that level because in your life, there, there are things you want to do and then you get there, you get beyond it, and you, and you say, this doesn't look like what I thought God was going to do. And Paul is in a scenario like that. He's leaving Jerusalem after being sent. And he's, and he's leaving this mob, one mob after another, working, toiling, preaching, teaching, setting up ministry, trying to get things done. And the result is a fight. The result is mob. The result is a fight in the council where there should be peace, where there should be wisdom, where there should be direction. It is the exact opposite, I would imagine, that Paul would want. And God says to him, Be encouraged, Paul. If God were to say to you, Carlton, come on up. Tim, come on up. If God were to say to you this morning in your life with the things that you are starting, with the purposes that you are trying to go after, with what God has called you to, with what you know you're supposed to be doing. If God were to say to you, when everything fell apart, be encouraged, would you hear him? And for some of you, the question is, the question is not a question, it is a statement. It is sit with this truth that God wants you to be encouraged, that God wants you to take heart. God wants you to have something in your heart that reminds you that you've been faithful. 
that you've been a witness. God tells Paul, you have witnessed for me. You have preached for me. You have done what I've asked you to do here. That, in fact, is why Paul's conscience is clear, because he's obeyed God. So if you're here this morning and, and, you're, and you're living in response to what God has told you, you're, you're going after, you're going after Christ with all of your heart. Be encouraged. Perhaps you're here and you're kind of like Ananias and maybe your turn is not as sharp. Can I tell you to be encouraged? Because wherever you're going next, God is there. God is there calling you saying, come on, come on. Keep coming. Keep coming. Bow your heads, church. Dear God, we are we are uh, we're your people, and. Uh, We sit before you, we kneel before you, we stand before you. And there is nothing about us that you don't know. So would you would you examine our hearts now? Would you would you look at us? Would you speak to us? Talk to our hearts. For those of us who are here and we and we know very clearly where you've calling where you've called us, what you're expecting of us. God, would you encourage our hearts? For those of us who are here this morning, Lord, and we we are we are clueless or at least confused or maybe muddled about your purposes, your plans, your presence even for our lives. Would would you would you be the voice that is closer than any other in our ears. Do your work, Holy Spirit of God. In Jesus' name. New community, as you go today um, and as you leave, go and live in the power of the Holy Spirit that looks at your past and sees Christ's past, that looks at your life and sees his sacrifice. Go in the power of the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead to look at your past and laugh with holy boldness because God has given you grace through the gospel. See you next week. Remember to sign up for membership class. Take the Haiti applications. God bless you. Have a great week, everybody.